Welcome to the Well Child Podcast, hosted by Dr. Sammy and Dr. Anna, two board-certified pediatricians and best friends known as the PediPals. This is a safe space where parents, caretakers, guardians, and those interested in pediatric health can find accurate parenting and medical information to raise healthy and happy children. To stay connected with us, follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at The PediPals, or visit our website at www.thepdpals.com. We are so grateful to have had a successful first season where we invited widely respected experts to discuss important topics. Here's to an even better season two just for you. Welcome. Um, as you know, I'm Dr. Anna and I have Dr. Sammy here. We have a special guest with us today uh, from the St. Thomas Episcopal School. Um, we have Mr. Colin O'Neill and Christina Mackey, and uh, they wanted to talk to us about the COVID vaccine in kids um, ages 5 to 11. And um, we just wanted to have a conversation because I know there's a lot of information out there, a lot of misinformation out there. And um, we definitely wanted to have a discussion and open forum where we can give our input of what we've noticed being pediatricians in the community um, and then what they're noticing in their schools. And hopefully this will help parents kind of make this decision as they're deciding on um, vaccinating their children. So welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Um, yeah, again, my, my name is Colin O'Neill. I'm the, the headmaster at St. Thomas the Apostle Episcopal School. We're over here in, in Nassau Bay in the Clear Lake area. Um, we have pre-K kids, so little tiny humans at three years old, all the way up to fifth grade, and we'll be going into the middle school year starting next year. And so, um, yeah, this is, this is very uh, highly relevant for us right now with vaccines becoming available for kids who are exactly in our uh, student body. So um, I know there are a lot of questions, you know, I'm a parent, um, Christina is as well, uh, both of kids in that age group. And so I, we can't thank you all enough for having us on and, and talking about this stuff with us. Of course. No, we appreciate that you guys are kind of um, taking that initiative to educate your families. And that's kind of what we do on a daily basis. And that's why we started our podcast, because we know that it gets overwhelming for families. And we wanted to do our part. So because we research this stuff a lot, and we treat patients, hundreds of patients a week, and um, we notice trends and we read a lot. And so we want to make sure families have the most accurate information. Now, a lot of this is new with the pandemic. A lot of this, you know, parents and uh, providers and doctors are trying to wrap their head around a lot of this stuff and they're doing a lot of research, but um, we have a lot of information. We have a lot to learn, but hopefully we can make the best decision, you know, moving forward. So um, let us have your questions. We'll be happy to answer. Absolutely. And yeah, and thank you. You know, our, our role as educators is to just connect people information uh, from experts like yourself so they can make an informed decision. And so uh, glad to have your expertise. Um, I think, you know, something that is on everyone's mind um, with this being such a new experience and getting kids vaccinated, you know, all of us have experience with, with other vaccines um, and the, the COVID vaccine came out. Uh, I myself got my own child vaccinated just last week. Um, but, you know, we, we've got Thanksgiving coming up and we're going to be around some people. 
Um, and he's not going to get his second dose until after that. And so I think something that's on, on my mind as a, as a dad is just, you know, what, what is his level of protection between dose one and dose two? Is it kind of a zero sum game or is there like degrees of protection uh, along the way? That's a great question. Um, and a little bit of a nuanced answer, but in order to simplify it as much as possible, and I think that's probably the best way, you know, just for the general public, for us to think about it, I would think of it as a very small amount of protection. And so I wouldn't rely on it. Uh, there are a lot, a lot of people that get breakthrough infections between dose one and two. If we had to throw a number at it, um, we would, we would say that you have about 20, 30% protection in between your doses. And so it's not a lot. Um, it is some protection, but the real protection comes two weeks after your second dose. And so the first dose is really, it's like a little message that's delivered to your body um, and it primes your immune system. It gets your immune system ready. And then the real immune response comes after the second dose and then it's like several weeks after the second dose, actually. And so while there is a little bit of protection that happens with the first dose, it's not enough to protect anybody from COVID the way that we want it to. So it is an incomplete immunization. Um, and so it's kind of like other immunizations that we give during childhood. Um, each dose does offer a slight bit, but until the series is over, you don't have full protection. We have that for like measles and mumps and rubella, chicken pox, they're all two dose series. And so you can have a lot of breakthrough infections in between the two doses. So I wouldn't count on um, that first dose to do much during the Thanksgiving holidays, but I would say at least you're in good shape for Christmas being a good protected time. Okay, great. So I kind of think of it as an analogy to crossing a busy street. If you go in the cross, you've got a really good chance that you're going to make it across the street safely. Um, I send my kid across the street if they they just had the twenty percent chance. So we're going to uh, continue, uh, you know, masking and, and doing those things. That's actually really cool to, to understand it that way, even as an adult. Um, it helps me in communications with families who are even they themselves getting vaccinated. Like, hey, you got the text message. Now you have to attend the event and get the second one. Um, and so just being able to speak to that, I appreciate that analogy. Um, I am going to just personify myself as this parent who broached this question. So as a working mama, you know, we have stops to make on the way home. And, you know, let's just say my little one is vaccinated, right? But we get to the store, like we get to the door, I look down and of course she doesn't have her mask with her, but she's been vaccinated. Do I need to trek back with her to the car, grab the mask, or can we feel a little bit more safe and liberated and I let us take our chances and go in? What would you recommend? Yeah, you know, this is a great question. And of course, there's going to be varying degrees of comfort that comes with each family, you know. And when we make uh, kind of recommendations in our clinic, um, some of them are blanket recommendations that we know for from the CDC and information we've gathered. But a lot of the recommendations are case by case, you know, family members. So um, I know I've had lots of difficult conversations in clinic about whether to send kids to school initially, you know, when they weren't 
vaccinated. Um, we have uh, elderly in the home. We have people that are immunocompromised at home. There's people that can't get the vaccine, maybe a newborn in the home. So everybody has a different situation at home and it's very, and it's everyone has a different comfort level. You know, we know that after, let's say, for example, that child is vaccinated, we know that their ability to get the vaccine, uh, to get the infection is reduced, um, you know, greatly and their ability to transmit that to other people is also reduced. So we know that we have good chances, um, but that's not to say that we can't have an asymptomatic, you know, carrier. Um, so if we have a high risk situation where we have a newborn in the home, or if we have a family member that's vulnerable, um, you know, personally, I would say wearing the mask is always the safest option, especially in an indoor setting um, where, you know, you have other people that are not masked and it's a big crowd. You know, I feel like in an outdoor setting, it would be a little bit safer to keep the mask off. Um, in an indoor, if you have access to the mask, of course, I would choose that option. Um, now, if you don't, it's okay. I mean, parents have enough to be guilty about. They have enough to stress about. Um, you know, you've done the best you can for that situation. So, you know, I would I would try not to have that mommy daddy guilt, you know, going off because everybody has, people have to work. Some people are fortunate enough to be able to work from home. Other people have to go to school. We both have to, you know, we're in the medical field. So we also had to take those precautions with our family members and our kids. So you do the best you can with the resource you have. And sometimes you have to make a game time decision. Um, but I think if you don't have the mass accessible, it's okay. You're protected to a certain extent. So feel comfort in that. But um, when in doubt, it would be the safest. And Christina, in regards to your situation in particular, um, with regards to COVID in general, it's all about layering, right? Layer The more layers you have, the more protected you are. So you are giving your child a very big layer of protection by getting the vaccine. And we, we know that with the trials anyway, it was 93% effective. So that's huge. But if you offer another layer as a mask, you, you boost that even more. And so you'll have to assess every situation, like Anna said, um, when you go into it. So if it's like a store and you feel there's not too many people, you're not not going to have direct exposure with anyone for more than 15 minutes. We're going to be quick in and out. It's probably a very low risk situation. So after they've been vaccinated, so you probably will be okay. But if it's like a super busy store, everyone's neck to neck in there, um, then, you know, that might be a little higher risk. Like Anna said, especially for talking indoors, if it's an outdoor environment where you can distance, you can probably relax the reins a little bit. So you'll have to assess those situations still for the next little while especially also taking into account how much COVID is in your community. Like right now in the greater Houston area in Texas, we our cases have gone down significantly. So that's really positive, but we might have another surge that'll come up later, which means we're all going to increase our, you know, co our masking and all of our things that we're going to be doing and our distancing, right? So you can assess the situation still. It's We're still on like a week by week thing, unfortunately, but that vaccine gets you really, really good protection so that if you are accidentally exposed, you have a good chance of not getting it. And thank you, you, thank you both. And, and I was totally also in that situation uh, a couple weeks ago. So thank you, Dr. Anna, for writing me a prescription to be uh, relieved of parent guilt. Anytime. <laughs> That's what we're here for. So, um, yeah, is 
our, our, you know, I, when, when I got my son vaccinated, uh, for his first dose, uh, I got my booster Our we, do we know is maybe it's too early to know. I don't know yet. Um, our kids going to need boosters. Is this going, is this looking like an annual thing that we now do? For the kids, it's definitely too soon to know. Um, time will tell. And we'll have to see how the next year goes. It's still so much up in the air. I think for now, we're good for the next eight to 10 months. Is it possible that this might turn into an endemic thing, kind of like how the flu is just part of the community and we get their annual shot? That's a that's a big possibility, but we just don't know yet. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I would add is for the adults as of right now, you know, they're recommending it for the, for the adults that are high risk, um, that have immunocompromised uh, conditions, uh, ones in the healthcare community, um, you know, people that don't have necessarily a strong immune system, they might need that booster, but for the general population, um, the studies are showing that they still have good protection with those two doses. Um, but as you know, we're going to get new variants possibly. Um, and that's why we really want everyone to have that best possible chance of protection in their community. So as many people as we can get, because the more people that get vaccinated, the less chance that virus changes and mutates and forms, you know, variants like the Delta variant. So a lot of these boosters is going to depend on what type of variants we're seeing, how contagious they are. So that's going to be an ongoing thing, you know, a decision that they're going to make um, over over the years. Uh, but so far from the adults, we're seeing good protection with those two doses. And then the booster, especially for those few populations. Okay. Um, so this one, we actually have a lot of this, uh, these families in our school with multi-age children in the home. I myself have two children. Uh, one is two, one is five. So one's eligible, one's not. What, honestly, is one more likely to contract COVID than the other based on age? Just plainly asking, what are my chances? Um, well, so your, um, five-year-old right now has significantly reduced their chance by getting the vaccine. Well, after the second dose, right. But significantly reduced their chance. So that would mean that right now in your household, your two-year-old will be the most vulnerable, but you guys have created a cocoon around them by getting everyone in the house vaccinated. And studies have shown that household contacts are are the people that would be most likely to give it to you. After that, of course, I don't know if your two-year-old's in daycare, but that might play a part in it too. Um, so whoever is not vaccinated in your house right now is the most vulnerable to getting infection. Um, it is possible one of y'all that has been vaccinated could get a breakthrough infection and bring it home. Remember, those symptoms will be milder because that's what the vaccine does. It helps prevent hospitalization and death and really makes the symptom or course milder. But that's very unlikely if you've been fully vaccinated and immunized, but it is possible it does happen, especially with the higher rates of COVID in the community. So right now I would focus on your little one being the one that everyone tries to protect the most. And I'll let Anna kind of chime in as well. Yeah, thank you. And between the five and I'm sorry, between the five-year-old and the two-year-old unvaccinated, does is one more susceptible than the other if they're both unvaccinated? 
Um, I would say it would depend on their level of exposure and risk. So if one is in school um, and, you know, they're wearing their mask and, you know, they're, uh, they have good distancing and they have good hygiene, then their risk might not be as high. You know, you know, the two-year-old is going to be touching everything, putting everything in their mouth. So some of it is age related and developmental related. You know, it's harder for us to get the under two-year-olds to wear their mask. And, um, and, and, you know, there's some older kids too. So it's uh, probably going to depend on their exposures and how they are developmentally, um, you know, how mature they are developmentally and how well they can follow those instructions. But otherwise, just from an age standpoint, you know, um, I think everyone is equally able to contract it um, if they're given the same scenario, you know, if they're all in the same environment, they're exposed to someone within six feet. Um, but it would just be the risks and the exposures that we would look at. But I just wanted to add, you know, with all of these vaccines, uh, main thing that I want parents to know, especially with the flu vaccine, you know, with the flu vaccine, it's not has it hasn't been as effective in preventing the flu than, let's say, the COVID vaccine. You know, every year we get cases of the flu. So um, I tell parents, you know, if you're around someone with the flu, there is still a high chance that you can contract it. The main reason they spend money and they and they make it every year is because it reduces hospital and deaths by 80%. And so if your child does get the flu, you've significantly reduced their chance to get super sick, hospitalized, and hopefully not, you know, um, have serious complications from it. So that's our goal with all of these vaccines. We understand that we're going to have winter season every year. We're going to have exposure to these viruses every year, COVID included, uh, potentially. And um, our main goal is we don't want to have long-term effects, we don't want deaths, and we don't want serious complications. And so, um, uh, I have noticed to answer your question, you know, I've noticed that let's say we have uh, the older child parents all vaccinated, and we have a newborn or a two-year-old at home. Um, I have seen that if if one of those people gets COVID, there is a higher chance that not everybody in the house gets it. You know, so even though they're all living in the same environment, so uh, we. We have seen that clinically in our in our offices that it's really reduced the chance. So our goal is not necessarily to always prevent the getting the virus, but the serious complications that come from it. That's what makes it scary, you know. Yeah, I've done such a good job at answering our questions. I've, I've, I've um, so what is yeah uh, <clears throat> thinking about percentages do we know and and this this may be outside the scope of of being able to know right now is that it is so new that we got all the you know just now able to get kids vaccinated and and that'll add a lot to the the overall numbers um what's the but what's the buzz in the pediatric world around like what's the target obviously if, if we know we're not going to get to a hundred percent of kids um is there like a threshold that that people are aiming for to say, hey, if we can get to, you know, is it 70%, 80%, if we can get this much in a community, then we can all, you know, breathe a little bit easier, um, I guess, literally and figuratively. 
Yeah, that's a tough question. And I think it's going to take a lot of time and research and um, epidemiologists to kind of help us get that exact number. Um, We know that with the history of vaccines, for example, with something like pertussis or whooping cough, you know, we know that a lot of these uh, vaccines that we have, measles, um, usually if we have a 90% of the population, uh, roughly, you know, plus or minus uh, vaccinated, it greatly um, protects the entire Entire community. So we get that herd immunity that happens when majority of the population is vaccinated. Um, and in the last decade or so, as we've seen um, vaccines, you know, that threshold go down a little, we have seen breakthroughs of measles and pertussis and whooping cough. So it's definitely does Um, make those people that are vulnerable. So the infants that can't get the vaccine yet, the people that have cancer and other uh, immunocompromised states that aren't eligible to get it, it does make those people more vulnerable. And so that's why we all want to do our part to protect not only our families, but all the people that are vulnerable around us. With COVID, I really, I don't have a number in mind, but I would say that um, a lot of the vaccines that threshold is usually around that 80 to 90%. I don't know if, if uh, Dr. Sammy's heard differently, but. Yeah, it was what I was going to say. Uh, the variants also will, will matter. Um, so our threshold for herd immunity uh, was initially estimated to be lower and then Delta came around and then that threshold increased because Delta was more transmissible, it was more contagious. Um, And so that changed things. And so we're still in that teetering time of not knowing exactly where, you know, this is going to go. I would personally, again, just making things as simple as possible, I'd start with, let's start with a goal of 70. (laughs) If we could do 70, that would be awesome. And things might significantly improve. Now, maybe as Anna said, the variants might change or epidemiologists might give us a little bit more accurate data uh, and we might want to get more to like the 80 to 90, but I think that's a good starting point. And I just like to say in in areas we're we're seeing that, you know, in terms of hospitalization. So um, as they're measuring the county rates, um, you know, if we're looking at Canada, for example, you know, I think they're getting up to 85% of the people that are eligible are already vaccinated. And then they're going to start the 12 and under Um, in those counties and states where the vaccination rate is high. We don't see the hospitals overwhelmed. We don't see as many hospitalizations and deaths. So um, even if we don't have an exact number, we know, you know, it, it's been shown over the last year and a half that that the higher the percentage, the less breakthrough cases we're having. That's encouraging. I have just one question. So I think one of the big things folks want to know is how do I prepare my baby to get this shot? So we are kind of familiar and normed on what adults feel when they get the vaccine. And I know there's a differentiation for some between the initial and then the second dose and the boosters. They're all beasts of their own nature. But for the babies, what can we um, preempt them with to be prepared? I love this question. This is a good one. Um, So I'll tell you a few things. Um, We know that for adults, it is completely normal and typically after the second dose to feel absolutely nothing. There are some people running marathons after their second dose. And then there are other people that it kind of makes them feel like they have the flu. So it's normal for them to get a fever, pain at the injection site, have body aches, headaches, 
and feel unwell. It usually will happen 10, sometimes 20 or 30 hours after the second dose. And usually that's a sign that your immune system is working really well. Um, And it usually doesn't last more than a day or so and then gets better. You're welcome to take ibuprofen or Tylenol aged and dose dependent um, if you need to, to help with those symptoms or just rest it off. Now, I can say that so far for the 12 to 18-year-olds, that really didn't happen. We've had the 12 to 18-year-olds eligible for vaccination, and most of them tolerated it quite well and barely had any symptoms. Maybe a random one here or there would have a fever after the second one. And so there's no reason to think that that won't be even more so the case with the five to 11 year olds that they'll probably be bouncing around like nothing happened. But for preparation purposes, it's perfectly okay as a parent to let them know that the day after or several hours after they've gotten their second dose, their arm may hurt. That's totally normal. Or they might feel not so good, like they're maybe kind of sick, but that they could just rest and that their symptoms will get better on their own. And that just means that their immune system's working and that they're going to be protected against coronavirus. Yeah. I love that question too. And Sammy did a great job. Um, the only thing I, I add when I, when I talk to kids in the, in the clinic and they're worried about their shots, you know, I always tell them that I'm about to give them superpowers, you know, they're going to get these superpowers. They're going to get these instructions for their body to build the army so that if they ever, you know, come across an illness or a virus that their body will already be prepared. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they might not get sick, but we're trying to give them the best chances, their body, the best chances to fight um, the infection so that they don't get super sick from it. And um, I always, uh, you know, as far as the younger kids, I've been, like Sammy said, even the older ones, we have seen very minimal side effects. Um, When we reviewed the studies of the trials for the 5 to 11, it was mostly the pain at the injection site, a little bit fevers. There was some lymph node swelling that was noted. So if you see your children have some lymph node swelling, that's okay. You know, monitor it, talk to your pediatrician. Some children notice some numbness or tingling, um, those types of symptoms all very mild. So if you have any symptoms that are lasting longer than two, three days, definitely let your pediatrician know, but we've seen that with the trials, but most kids fared really well. I love your explanation of giving the kids superpowers. Um, what, so that's, that's a good question that comes up a lot too, is just, you know, um, I experienced this when, when I was a kid. So I had, I had about a viral meningitis when I was in uh, kindergarten. And it was, I, I remember the, the spinal tap and all that. It was, it was pretty awful. Um, and from there on out for, for many years, I not the big, was not the biggest fan of going to the doctor. I got over it. I'm good now. But um, as a kid, that was that was really intense. And I know a lot of kids um, who are, you know, kind of, you know, this pandemic's been with us for almost two years now. And so this is a really big part of their reality and their perception of our, um is just something we, we have to get do a lot more coaxing oftentimes. Do you have any tips for parents on just how to make that transition into the pediatrician or to the clinic to to get that vaccine any easier for kids who are, you know, screaming, kicking, crying, terrified of of coming to see (laughs) y'all. Well, I mean, this is what we do every day. 
I will say, at least for myself and Anna, I think we have a really good rapport with most of our patients. Um, we have our patients are constantly pretend calling us on the phone or dressing up like us, like for Halloween and stuff. So we try to make things as kid friendly as possible. Um, we play with them. We talk to them. The physical exam is like a one man's circus. <laughs> you know, we're looking for butterflies in their ears. We're asking their tummy what they had for breakfast and things like that. And then even with the vaccination, um, you know, the company we work for, the hospitals with the kids are usually really kid friendly. They've had therapy dogs there. They're giving the kids stickers and anything at all to help make the experience as kid friendly as possible. Um, there are just some times and it's usually person dependent. And then a lot of times age dependent, specifically with the toddlers that you can't reason with them. It's it's like trying to explain to a dog why you're taking them to the vet. They just don't get it. And in those situations, it's super gut-wrenching as a parent, um, but it's just better to do it quick in and out and like not prolong it. And then when they're older, they will understand just like you, you know, you were five, you had your meningitis. It was the worst experience over, but now you've grown into adult and you're like, I'm over it. I'm fine now. And it, the same thing happens with kids um, when they are unable to comprehend why we're doing what we're doing. Believe me, it's not fun for us either. We, most of the time when we're giving shots, we're like, this hurts us more than it hurts you. Um, but, but. But as they get older, then we're able to reason with them and talk to them, like Anna said, and explain analogies like her awesome superhero analogy or superpower analogy. So I don't know if that's kind of what you were looking for. I'll let Anna chime in too. Yeah, I think it is hard. We always find when they get to that like preteen, you know, between like eight to 10, you know, range, they have a hard time because they're building up that anxiety, you know, in their mind. And we know that they beat up their brothers and sisters every day and we get big football players in there and they're, you know, they're always getting hurt, but they're really nervous about that little shot or that poke that barely even pinches, you know? So a lot of times it's that anxiety that um, creates all that. So I think it's important to know your child. There's some children where if you talk to them and prepare them, they do really well and they're prepared. There's other children, if you talk to them for a long period of time about it, that will only increase their anxiety, only make them fight more and only make the experience worse, you know? So some things that I tell some of the kids, the older kids, when they have kind of, uh, they understand or we can have a dialogue, is, you know, um, if you have, if you're really nervous and you're tight and you're holding your muscle really, really tight and you're getting a little shot, it's, uh, it's going in like, you know, it's, it's hitting something that's really tight, like a rock. And that usually hurts more. Um, but if you're really relaxed and you're distracted and mom, you know, mom is playing with you, uh, you know, uh, like Sammy said, we're doing a little mini circus in there. They don't even know. Right. And so they don't even feel it. And so if your muscle is really loose and re relaxed, then you don't feel the shot as much. So there's things like that that parents can do at home when they're prepping. So a lot of our parents use Doc McStuffins. They use a lot of the toys to kind of show them uh, what to expect when they get to the doctor's office. We do a lot of that. Our nurses are amazing and we love them because sometimes we we walk by the room and we're like, we didn't even hear a peep, you know, and they walked out so happy. So a lot of it is that anxiety of getting of getting shots. And if you can talk them through it and give them little tips, I think it helps. But we know we're doing what's best for them. And usually they forget about it the minute, you know, <laughs> they walk out of there. So. 
And then also there's been some studies that have shown that if there is a little bit of a distraction that happens during the time that the needle is going in, that they won't feel or perceive the pain the same way. And so if they're old enough, you can ask them to cough during that a few times in a row as the needle's going in and those tend to have a better experience of getting the shot. The other thing I've seen really helpful lately has been parents that have been getting the vaccines with them, you know, or I've seen uh, parents in our clinic getting the flu shot, you know, with them. And so it does, you know, and other brothers and sisters, if you go in with a whole group, um, you know, there's, it's usually a little bit easier. Remember, children pick up on a lot of the vibes that their mom and dad give off. So the calmer you are, the better it is for the kids, too. It's, it's just like dropping them off at preschool. Yes. Same, <laughs> Same thing. Exactly. Right. Just get, get it done. Yep. <laughs> I think those were all the questions I have. I don't, uh, Christina, yeah. anything else? No, that was my last one, the side effect. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Um, yeah, we're, 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 we love to see you guys in the community really taking charge and um, asking questions and asking experts because that's what we live for and that's what we do every day. So um, we're always here if you need a, a source, if you have questions, you're welcome um, to ask us and we'll do the best we can. Thank you so much. We really Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you both so Bye. much. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any other agency, hospital, organization, employer, or company. Assumptions made in the analysis are not reflective of the position of any entity other than the participants. The participants are critically thinking human beings. Therefore, these views are always subject to change, revision, reconsideration, and recalculation at any time. This podcast collaboration makes no warranties or representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, suitability, or validity of any information, communication, exchange, and the participants will not be liable for any errors, omissions, or delays in this information, or any losses, injuries, or damages arising from its broadcast dissemination or use. All information is provided on an as-is basis. It is the communication recipient's responsibility to verify any facts.